Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Well, last week we kicked off our new sermon series titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, what we were doing then, and it's still what we're doing today, is getting acquainted with some of the the unique aspects um, that make Revelation what it is. But today, we're going to move beyond just the unique aspects to consider what Revelation is all about. And that's really what we're looking at today and focusing on what Revelation is all about. Now, fortunate for the reader of Revelation, uh, the first three verses clearly communicate right up front what this book is focused on. So I want us to look at those verses again, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Heavenly Father, as we now open the Bible and we begin uh, again to focus on verses 1 through 3, specifically this week focusing on pulling out of the text what is there. I just pray that your spirit would help me to be able to communicate effectively and help all of us, uh, those in this room, those who are in the overflow room, those who are online, help all of us, Lord, to receive from you today uh, what you have for us. And whatever step we might need to take, some step of of confession of sin or a step of obedience in a particular direction or perhaps that initial step of coming in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to have what is necessary to take that step. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the focus of the book of Revelation is not only just identified in the first three verses, it's identified in the first five words. All right? So it literally, it is right up front. And on the screen are those five words, and I would like for you to read them with me. And I would like for you to read them with me slowly. Okay, not like that, but ready? Read the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that fact may not blow you out of your seat, but I believe that it is crucial to have a firm grasp on what Revelation is about, and it's no small thing to start there and to have a a firm grip on what this book is really all about. Think about it. Uh, What's the point? What's the point of investing copious hours of reading and studying a, a, a Bible book if you don't first know what the book is focused on? And I believe most folks don't know what Revelation is focused on. Now, I've been a faithful attender of church gatherings since I was born, literally, and that's been 63 years. I've been a Christian for 48 years, and I've been 
full-time in the ministry as a teaching pastor for 30 years. And in all of that time, no one ever taught me, nor did I discover the truth about Revelation until the Holy Spirit laid it on my heart to begin to teach through Revelation that the focus of the book in its entirety is Jesus the Christ. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that if you were put on the spot, perhaps most of you, maybe all of you, and someone said to you, tell me, before we got to this study, what is Revelation all about? I think that the vast majority of you and Christians around the world would say something other than Jesus is the actual focus of Revelation. I believe if we took a poll asking people what Revelation is all about, that the number one answer would probably be, well, it's about the seven-year tribulation because that's pretty prominent in the book. Others might say, a number two answer might be, well, it's about Armageddon. It's about that big battle at the end where everything just, whew, you know, goes, as I say, as I say, as I say to hell in a handbasket. But anyway, uh, others might say, well, Pastor, it's about the rapture. Some may say it's about the Antichrist. Others would say, well, it's about the 144,000 that rise up and preach the gospel. But I think there'd be a lot of different answers what people would give, and I doubt if very many of them would say right up front, it's about Jesus Christ. The other day I was listening to a pastor uh, preach a sermon from Revelation, and, and this is what he said. He said, quote, Revelation is about the ultimate struggle between the forces of good and evil of God and Satan. The point he was making suggested I believe that it was in this struggle between God and Satan that all of the horrible events that happened during the tribulation are from the hand of Satan as he wars against God. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that would probably be the majority view of people who have dabbled at whatever level in the book of Revelation. However, if we took that view, we would be completely wrong. Truth point number one sorts that out for us. Truth point number one says, there is no struggle between God and Satan. I just want to stop there. Because I got a feeling there's maybe some reaction to that. Huh? What? That's right. There is no struggle between God and Satan. Because God does not struggle with anyone or anything. Think about it. Yahweh is the sovereign Lord. And he has been working out his plan that he created before he even brought creation to be. So the fact remains that the only struggle that there is is the struggle that Satan has against God. God's not struggling with the devil. But I guarantee you the devil is struggling against God. And the reason that he struggles against God is because Satan created originally as an angel, Lucifer, is not all-powerful. He is not everywhere present. He is not all-knowing. He is not infinite as Yahweh is, but is finite as we are. And so he struggles with God, not the other way around. So as we move through the book of Revelation, I, I want to encourage us not to see it 
as a cosmic struggle between good and evil or between God and Satan, but rather as we go through the book of Revelation that we would see it as Satan's struggle to overthrow God's sovereign rule and the absolute assurance that that can never happen. That's the way I would encourage us to see Revelation as we move through it. Now that said, the horrific events that are described in Revelation occurring during the seven-year tribulation, I want you to catch this, are not from the hand of Satan, but from the hand of Jesus Christ himself. You ever thought about that? You read through and you see all that stuff and you think, man, Satan's got it. He's got it out for us. I want to tell you that those things that you see are from the hand of Jesus Christ himself. Now, it is true that Satan has plenty of wrath, (laughs) plenty of wrath uh, because of his continued failure to achieve his diabolical goals. But the tribulation, which fills the book of Revelation, is about the wrath of the Lamb of God being poured out on a faithless world and on the satanic influence that underpins it. And so that brings us to truth point number two this morning. Revelation is focused on the unveiling of Jesus as the judge of all humanity, as the judge of the spiritual principalities of of evil, and he's also revealed there as the conquering king who ultimately destroys all evil, establishing his eternal kingdom of righteousness. And so as we think about this this, this thing, about what is Revelation all about? Again, just remember, this is only the second step in this process that is going to take us many miles down the road. I'm just wanting to make sure we're laying this foundation clear because I know that there are many misunderstandings and misconceptions. I want us to grasp this. It's so important that despite the fact that Revelation reveals a seven-year tribulation period, it reveals an Armageddon, it reveals an Antichrist, it reveals 144,000 witnesses that go into the world to preach the gospel, it is Jesus, not those other things, that is the focus. And you're going to see that as we go through how he is involved in all of that. He is the author of much of that and all of the reaction that comes is a reaction to what he's doing, not coming up from the other side of the fence. So Revelation is first and foremost about Jesus, right? We've got that now, don't we? Fantastic. So the next thing to consider from the text this morning is this. How did we get the book of Revelation? By what means did it make itself to us? so that we could read it and it could impact our lives. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. The simple answer to the question, how do we get the book of Revelation, by what means did it come to us, 
is this. The book of Revelation began where all revelation begins, and that is in the heart of God. All revelation begins there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now that phrase right there that I have underlined, breathed out by God, is translated into English from one singular Greek word. And that word is theonoustos. Theo means God, and noustos or pneuma means breath. Okay? And so what we discover is that all Scripture is literally breathed out of God. In other words, another way of saying it is that it emanates from the very core of his being. It is not something we create. It's something we can discover. But it comes directly out of the very core of his being. And therefore, it is profitable. It is profitable for teaching. It is profitable for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so the Bible as a whole is God's revelation to us, fallen men and women, of things that we could never know if he did not condescend to our level to reveal it to us. For example, let's just think about creation. How creation came to be. I mean, let's face it. Without God pulling back the curtain to show us uh, what we cannot see, we would not know how all that we do see and encounter actually came to be. We would be left to do a lot of guessing, which actually does happen in our world of people who do not want to take God's word seriously. But if he didn't reveal it to us, how could we possibly know how the sun, moon, and stars got there, how the earth got here, how animals were, got here, how the plants got here, how man got here, and all of the other factors that are revealed there. So God must condescend to us to bring us light of revelation. But even still, and I want you to catch this, without the illuminating interpretive work of the Holy Spirit... We would not be able to grasp the revelation that's been given. So God must condescend to our level to give us revelation, but even still, we have it. We may have it right here in this book. We might be able to turn to all kinds of things revealed by God that he's given us, but without his indwelling Holy Spirit illuminating our minds to the truths therein, we would never fully grasp what God intends for us to grasp. So in every way, shape, and form, all revelation and the understanding of revelation comes from the triune God. Amen? Amen. Now, as it relates to what is being said there in verses 1 and 2, um, I cannot explain how it is that since um, Father and Son and Spirit are all co-equal God, and they are, how it would be that God the Son would not know or have possession of a point of revelation. I, I don't know how to explain that to you. But what we see in the text is that God the Son did not possess this revelation in and of himself. What we see clearly is that the Father rather 
handed or gave the revelation to his son. The revelation about his son was given to his son. And so what we encounter in the book of Revelation is that, A, it originated in the heart of God, and then he in turn gave it to God the Son. He gave it to Jesus the Christ. We're talking right now about how it came to be. So that was the first step. Before we go on to other steps, verse 1 also tells us the purpose, the reason that the Father gave this revelation to his Son. It was given to Jesus so that he might be able to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That's the reason. And so truth point number three just kind of sums that up for us. The book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus and was given to him. He did not possess it in and of himself. It was given to him that his followers might know what must soon take place, things that actually have Jesus at the center so the revelation that the father I just want you to kind of grasp this because it's really kind of a, a mind twister grasp that the father God the father gave to God the son revelation about himself not about the father but about the son well the son should know all that right well I'm just telling you what the scripture tells us That the Father gave it to the Son, and the reason he gave it to him was so that we, Jesus' servants, could know something we cannot know on our own. So that we would know the things that must soon take place. This then begs the question, how did Jesus make his revelation known to his servants? It was given to him that his servants might know how did Jesus make it known to his servants. And the scripture says that it begins and starts with an angel. Now, what is an angel? Well, an angel is a supernatural spirit being whose sole purpose is to carry out every command of God. That's what an angel is, a spirit being who was created. They're created beings. They're not eternal beings in the sense of being of always being around they had a beginning point and their purpose is to carry out every command of God the word angel though literally means messenger so the angels are the messengers of God and as we look at verses 1 and 2 and think about how the book of Revelation came about and we consider that Jesus gave it to his angel um, in Revelation itself Uh, it is not revealed who that angel actually was, okay? Which tells me that who the angel was is not as important as who the angel belonged to. And John does give us that, or Revelation does give us that. He's identified as Jesus's angel. Huh. So the father gives it to the son, and the son passes it on to his angel but he doesn't tell us who the angel is now I I, I, I'm not going to tell you I know who the angel is because I don't but some have suggested that this angel might very well have been Gabriel now how would they have come up with that I want to share with that with you very quickly first of all we do know from Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 
that it was the messenger, it was, it was, it was um, Gabriel who was sent to Daniel on two specific occasions recorded in Daniel where Gabriel gave him revelation, divine revelation, about the time frame that we're actually going to be studying in the book of Revelation, okay? So we know from the Old Testament scripture, God sent Gabriel to Daniel, who then shared some things with Daniel that lived thousands of years ago, uh, to um, about the very time frame, the end time, that revelation records. So that's interesting. The second thing, in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, we find that it was the angel Gabriel who appeared to Mary. Right? He appeared to her to announce that she would be the vehicle through which the promised Messiah would come into the world. So we have Gabriel being dispatched by God to talk about end time stuff with Daniel. Then he dispatches Gabriel to go to Mary to talk about the entrance of the Messiah into the world. So it stands to reason, I suppose, that if God used Gabriel to give Daniel prophetic revelation about the end time and also to bring revelation about the coming of the Messiah to Mary, it seems to stand to reason that he might. Circle it. Might. I don't know. That he might use him to give further revelation about end times and about Jesus' sovereign involvement over it to John. And that then brings us to the human author of the book, the Apostle John. God gave the revelation. The Father gave it to the Son. The Son, Jesus, gave it to his angel. And the angel brought it to John. Now, this is where things, I think, get rather interesting. It's interesting to discover how the angel brought this revelation to John. Uh, there are a couple of places in Revelation where you find an angel talking to John and saying, write this down, and then tells him exactly what to write down. That does happen, but it's rare. It's very rare when you take the entirety of the book um, as it is. So what we discover is that the primary mode of bringing the revelation to John was not to dictate to John like an executive might dictate to a secretary. Instead, we discover that the angel actually took John into heaven and into the future. Don't ask me to explain how that works. I can't. But that's what the revelation tells us. Took him into heaven took him into the future for him to actually witness the things that are recorded here. So John then is not someone who writes down what he was told, but he writes down the things that he saw, the things that he heard. It's quite different, quite different. And so some of the things that John saw and heard are quite literal. And some of the things that John uh, heard and saw um, are symbolic, but it is my belief they are symbolic about what is literal. So there is no taking away from the literalness of it all. 
And John's task then was to record with his own words, words of a first century man, what he saw, what he heard, and of course we know that the Holy Spirit empowered him to do it. So John, who is John? Who is John? Well, John is the apostle, John. He is one of the original 12 disciples that Jesus called to follow him and that Jesus personally mentored during his ministry. Uh, He was part of Jesus' inner circle of three, Peter, James, John. They were the closest to him. They received Jesus' the most of his attention. He is the one that Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to as Jesus hung on the cross. He looked down to John and he said, behold your mother. And to his mother, behold your son, meaning I'm putting you two together. John, I need you to watch over Mary. That's in John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. John is the one who wrote the gospel that bears his name. John is the one who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. What we know about John from history, and I'm just giving just a a very brief snippet of that here this morning, is, is that the Roman government tried to kill him. There came that point at which they wanted to shut him up and they were tired of the things he was doing in the name of Christ, and so they attempted to kill him. And history tells us that they uh, put him in a boiling cauldron of oil. (laughs) How do you survive that? I don't know. But history records that he did. And so rather than running him through with a, with a sword or something else to go ahead and get, it, get the job done, they decided, you know what, we're just going to exile him. And they exiled him to the penal colony that was on the island of Patmos. And we'll talk more about that when we get to verse 9 because John talks about being on the island of Patmos and how he began to receive this revelation. But one of the things we know about John is that he did not die on the island of Patmos. Uh, He was eventually released from his exile. But it was while he was on the island of Patmos that he received this opportunity to to hear and to see the things that that he recorded in the book of Revelation. And this occurred around 95, 96 A.D. And get this, older ones. He was pushing 90 when that happened. Now, some of you in here who are 80-something think you're advanced. Well, you are. (laughs) But John, 90 years old. Can you imagine being treated the way he was treated at that advanced? I mean, a 25-year-old would have trouble with it. But imagine being that advanced in years and being put in a cauldron of oil, then sent to a penal colony where he had to do hard labor and live in a cave at the age of 90. I want to stop here for just a second to say something. I think it's very common among us to always want life to be easy, right? Happy, peaceful, and by all means, easy. 
I want it that way. Guarantee you. And sometimes when God allows our nice little easy existence to get rattled up a little bit, we just fall to pieces. We just can't believe it. What what did I ever do to have to endure this? And so we call up every friend we have and we put it on the church prayer list and please pray that this will be delivered I can get back to my easy, comfortable life. Because we tend to think that trial and tribulation is bad. Well, it is in one sense of the word. But I want you to understand that it was God, the Son, Jesus, the Christ, the mentor of John, who allowed John to actually put him in the position of going through this horrific negative situation so that he could impart the revelation that John recorded and that we could benefit from it in these days and times. So what I want to say to all of you and to myself as well, it's not wrong to want the easy, comfortable life. I don't think that it's wrong, but I do think it's wrong to worship it. And I think we also need to recognize that God allows negative circumstances in our lives, and sometimes the reason is because that's the way he's going to put us in the position that we need to be in to make a difference for him. And so maybe we need to rethink the situation. Instead of thinking that every negative circumstance is something we've got to beg and claw and cry and plead over to get out of, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, and you can hold me accountable to this because I'll probably screw it up the first, I'll be the first one. But listen to me, maybe, maybe, just maybe, we need to say, Lord, I'm in this situation. Now, what is it I'm supposed to be doing for you? How am I supposed to be seeing this? And how do you want to glorify yourself through me in this trial? Now, I'm talking to some folks in this room who have been through some pretty serious trials. And I know when you were going through it, just like when I went through mine, uh, it's no fun and we want out. But I think the many of you who I'm thinking of could stand up on this stage today and say, yeah, it it was hard. But I now see what God was doing, and I'm so glad he allowed me to go through that and to experience and to have an impact on others the way he allowed me to have it. Well, that's just a little extra. You won't have to pay anything extra for that. (laughs) So, in short, this is how the book of Revelation came to us. God the Father gave it to the Son, who gave it to his angel, who exposed the apostle John to the events. John then wrote it down. It was accepted into the canon of Scripture, and that has made it available to us in our Bibles. So that's how it got here. Verse 3, the blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. We are told here in this third verse of Revelation chapter 1 that there is a blessing. A blessing for those who read it, a blessing for those who hear it, a blessing for those who keep what is written in it. In fact, let me just say this to you, there's not just one blessing. 
There are actually seven blessings that are recorded in Revelation. It's become known as the Beatitudes of Revelation. And I don't have time to go into those. I'm not going to even try to explain them. But I do want you to see them because eventually we'll get there. And when we get there, we'll, we'll break it down and we'll learn from it. But there are six more. I just read the seventh, the first one to you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 14, verse 13 is the second one. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. So obviously this is one of those occasions where John was told to write something specific. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Yeah, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, <laughs> that he might not go about naked and be exposed. <laughs> oh, wow. Do you think he's talking about real clothes there? Eh, I don't think so either. But it's interesting the way that that's phrased. I want to keep my clothes on and I don't want to be exposed, so I'm going to try to stay awake. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'll just say this, that there is coming an event in which our Savior and we, His bride, will be together celebrating the union of our relationship forever and ever. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. I look forward to getting there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Can I say that the only ones who are going to share in the first resurrection are those who in their lifetime repented of their sin and put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ? They are the ones. If that's you, that's awesome. If it's not, maybe God's going to give you an opportunity today. Revelation 22:7. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Hmm. That seems to really jack up the importance of what's in this book, wouldn't you say? And finally, Revelation twenty-two fourteen: blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Again, is he really talking about clothes? So as we go through we're going to examine each one of these passages more thoroughly when we arrive at the sections in which they are found. Now, before I bring a wrap-up to the message, I want to talk a minute about time. About time. And I'm focused here on verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 says that God gave this revelation to His Son to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That is a statement about time. And verse 3, 
Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In 2023, these statements are almost irrelevant, wouldn't you say? I mean, (laughs) 1,900 years, and you're telling me it's going to soon take place? You're telling me the time is near 1,900 years? It just doesn't compute, does it, in our little minds? And we're very likely to take the attitude, well, it's been 1,900-some years. Um, maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe, maybe this is a place where the Lord slipped up. And his plan's not going to come forward. Well, the Apostle Peter warns us not to think that way. And I want us to take a look at that. And this is a little bit extended, so just hang in there with me. We'll get out on time. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Peter writes... This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Now, that's a statement right there of Peter, these years ago, telling the folks that he's writing to initially, I want to remind you of the things the prophet said. He's talking, you know, those guys back 800, 900, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. I want you to keep those in mind. Don't forget them. And don't forget about the things that the Lord has made known through his apostles. That would certainly be very applicable to us. Verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Now, many of us in this room think we're in the last days. So, if this is true, then this would apply, wouldn't it? And I think we do have plenty of scoffers, do we not? Are you all awake? Are you still with me? I mean, it's only ten after. (laughs) Following their own sinful desires. Listen to what they will say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, in other words, ever since the ancients died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We don't need to get all hot and bothered about this stuff. I mean, it's not going to change. It's just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on until global warming takes us out, but it's going to go on, right? Because nothing's changed. So they'll scoff. And I think that's totally understandable. Totally understandable that the unregenerate world would scoff at the promise of God's second coming, of Christ's second coming. It's presented in Scripture. Again, the sheer length of time that has passed since it was given suggests, does it not, to the unregenerate mind that what was promised will not be fulfilled. But then Peter goes on to say in verse 5, They deliberately overlook this fact. What fact? 
Well, in the next couple of verses, Peter takes the reader through a brief tour of some of the things that God has done and how in his doing he did it over a very extended, long period of time. They forget that God's not on a timetable that we're on. And then in verse 8, he drops this exhortation on his fellow Christ followers. He says, but do not overlook this one fact. So he's told us that the unregenerate world, they overlook the fact that God is not in a hurry. The time means nothing to him. So they overlook that saying, well, it's been these many years, so it ain't going to happen. So he comes now to us believers and he says, don't you overlook this one fact. Don't be guilty of what they're guilty of. Beloved, that the Lord with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. In other words, God transcends time, friends. My puny 63 years seems like an eternity. And when my internet won't give me the answer in four seconds, I'm ready to call and complain. (laughs) The gall of those people for what I'm paying not to get that info to me in 1.5 seconds. So time means everything to me. But not to God. Try to, try to wrap your mind around that. How a thousand years to you could just look like a day. It doesn't matter. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, and that's kind of pointing toward where we're going in Revelation, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are on it, are done on it, will be exposed. We're going to read about that. And we're going to study that in Revelation. And the temptation is to think, well, it hasn't happened. It's not going to. Don't fall for that. This is relevant. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Whew, that sounds horrific, doesn't it? But he's saying, based on these revelations and these things that we know now that are going to come, what type of people should we be Hmm? what type of people should we be that we have this revelation should this revelation not cause us to be careful about the way we live about the decisions that we make about the way we spend our time about where our resources go that's the point isn't it Then, a positive note, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
as you possibly struggle or wrestle with the statements that are made in verse 1 and 3 about what must soon take place or about the nearness of the time when the things written in Revelation will take place, I want you to remember that the revelation of the things given to John originated with God the Father, the eternal one who does not live in time but transcends it. And what for us may seem like a long time to him is nothing. In fact, what he has said will be, from his perspective, is already in play. So don't let the word soon or near trip you up. If the time was near when John penned the words that he did, how much more near are they today? And how much more should we who know and love Christ and look for his coming be motivated to live for him faithfully in these days and times in which we live? Well, we've taken two Sundays to get acquainted with the book of Revelation. Next week, we're off and running. We will begin to study verses 4 through 8, a greeting from the triune God to John and his readers, followed by two weeks of unpacking John's face-to-face encounter with the glorified Christ, verses 9 through 17. Today, I close reminding my fellow believers that Revelation... Mm -hmm. The revelation should be an encouragement to you. It really should. Yeah, we're going to see and hear a lot of things that are like, oh. But nonetheless, it should be an encouragement to you as you come to see your Savior taking charge and dealing with the issues at hand in a righteous and proper way. And it should be an encouragement to you because you're going to see your Savior in ways that you've never thought of before. And you're going to see him take Satan and take the demons and take the world's population and the earth itself pouring out righteous judgment against those who denied him, defied him, and sought to dethrone him. You're going to see at every turn the world in its rejecting mindset being frustrated in their plans to try to overthrow Christ and his kingdom. And you will see over and over again, it demonstrated how futile it is to stand against the Son of God because he will defeat his enemies, he will establish his kingdom, he will condemn the faithless to eternal hell, and he will bring a new heaven and earth where his redeemed ones will live in righteous perfection with him forever. Now, brothers and sisters, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what can. To my unbelieving friends this morning, I say this. I hope that you will attend every service, whether it's here or online, so that you may receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I want to warn my unbelieving friends I want to warn you that what is encouraging to the followers of Christ will be terrifying to those who aren't. Because the wrath that would be poured out on those rejecting Christ will be nothing short of horrific. That's the bad news. The good news is we're not there yet. We're not there yet. 
And so we're still living in a time. We're still living in an age where we continue to preach Jesus crucified and risen again. We continue to live in what is known as the age of grace where we call out to men and women of of every type from every place to say that God is love, that Christ went to the cross. He demonstrated his love through what Jesus did there. He rose from the dead to bring you out of the condemnation of sin and to give you forgiveness and a right standing with God the Father and to become his dearly loved child. We live in that age right now. But how long will that age last? I don't know. And if that age were to end this coming week, if your faith is not in Christ, then I'm here to tell you that what's coming is going to be bad. The good news even there is we see in the book of Revelation many coming to Christ during the tribulation, but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to risk that. The bottom line is this. Listen to this carefully and then I'm going to pray. Today, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you have questions, if you want to talk more about some of the things we've talked about here today, I'd be thrilled to meet you anywhere, anytime. My contact information is on the screen. You can text, you can call, you can email. You reach out, I'll reach back. And I guarantee you the Lord will meet you where you are if your heart is open to him. Father, I pray now that as we begin to close the service, that you, Lord, would work in the hearts of those who have heard these things today. Lord, I would pray that you would begin with me, the one who was tasked to speak them, because there's need of more transformation in my heart. But I pray for all of us collectively that we would take seriously these things and that we would look forward to the blessings that come by reading and studying this book. And I pray for those who do not know Christ yet, that they would find him, that they would be found by him, and brought into the family of God. Lord, help people know that this is a safe place in the sense that they can ask anything they want. There's not going to be any, any shame or anything like that. We're happy to sit and talk and to pray and to deliberate as long as it takes. Help them to know that they can do that. And I pray that you will bring men and women, boys and girls, into your family through this time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.